I remembered as I was thinking about what I was going to talk about tonight that uh, Trungpa Rinpoche talked about uh, experiences of profound insight, the kind of insights that we hope will arise from our practice as being accidents. And he talked about practice as making us accident prone. And uh, so I thought if I had, uh, if I was going to give a title for this talk tonight, it would be uh, something like uh, Becoming Accident Prone, or m maybe even better yet, Knowing with a capital K, really knowing. Talk about the kind of profound insights after which we are tr changed irrevocably forever. And we set up the conditions here. We sit in this way and we walk in this way and we live in this way in community with rules about how we live to keep the mind alert, hoping that if we bring all of those conditions to bear on our ability, along with our ability to pay attention, that we will in fact suddenly see things in a new way. After all, it's all the stuff of the world and the stuff of your body and your life, but we are hopeful, and certainly I am, and I think you are too, that it will suddenly fall together in a new way and we will be forever changed. I was thinking about, uh, uh, in the Zen tradition, how uh, there's a tradition known as the ox herding pictures, a series of uh, drawings, and they're drawings of the story of, uh, on the level that you see it, seeking an ox, knowing about a certain ox, seeking that ox, catching glimpses of the ox, being able to catch the ox, being able to tame the ox, riding the ox home. Really, glimpses, it's meant to be a, a metaphor or a metaphoric way of looking at the path towards that kind of uh, enlightened living, where the insights that make us free and liberated and live in a way that uh, we all imagine we'd like to live in become fully ours. And <clears throat> particularly, I was interested in the drawing about the glimpse of an ox. We have glimpses of insights. People here have glimpses of insights. We have insights all the time where we have a moment of knowing really everything that arises passes away in, the, in, in, uh, in any kind of a circumstance. A walking period that seemed infinite comes to an end, or a sitting period that seems impossibly long ends. There's moment after uh, this breath ends, that breath ends. Every single thing ends, and if our mind is alert, we have nothing but beginnings and endings and maybe only disappearings all the time. And there are moments in which we really get that and say, whoa, I got that. And I got that when my mind wasn't able to get let go of this thought or this story, I struggled so much, I suffered so much. And then suddenly, I just looked up and the moment was so beautiful. And in that moment, the story fell out of my mind. And all of a sudden, I felt great. And I saw that that suffering is the habit of my own mind to grab onto a story and hold on to it. I really got it. All of a sudden, we know that we are inextricably part of the const continually arising 
new moment, new moment, new moment, not just in ourselves and of ourselves, but not separate from anything else. We realize in those kind of glorious moments that really it's an extraordinary, amazing, liberating insight. And really we can, in fact, live this life, but live it joyfully. Live it with compassion for all beings. Live it with infinite compassion out of the, out of the understanding of, of how it is to be not full of understanding, how it is to be trapped in the habits of mind. For the most part, when, when people report those experiences, and, and my, myself as well, I am very excited, I feel wonderful, I feel, ah, now I've really got it, and you've probably had those experiences where the heart feels light and we feel so encouraged and free and I'm not going to be like my old self again. And then we are like our old self again. So I really was interested in thinking about how do we get to know things so that we absolutely, irrevocably, unshakably know them. One of my teachers a long time ago talked about uh, the kind of knowing that goes, uh, that's a gradual increase of knowing, and he said it was going from a small K to a capital K when you really, really knew unshakably, but that it was a gradual going from small K to a capital K. I thought about the story of the Buddha after his own uh, enlightenment experience when uh, one of my colleagues mentioned it in the course of the time we've been together, when the Buddha then set out uh, to teach and he encountered the five ascetics that he'd been practicing with before, who, by the way, uh, according, to the, according to the story, saw him from afar coming and grumbled amongst themselves and said something like, depending on what text you read or what commentary, said something to each other like, let's avoid that lazy monk, Atama, who fell away from the serious practice. But when they approached him, they saw that he looked so radiant that they knew that he was changed and they were drawn to him and he taught them. And when he uh, preached that first sermon, setting into motion the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, it said at the end that one of them, Kodanya, Kandanya, so got it, and the Buddha knew it, and he said, Kandanya knows. And uh, I feel, sometimes when I hear that story, I feel bad for the other four. That <laughs> They probably felt bad at that moment, but... It's also said that when he then gave his next preaching, all the other four also got it. So I wanted to talk about coming to the verge of getting it, or when do we get it, or when do we get it, that it's so unshakably, that knowledge is so unshakably installed. After all, we've talked so much about the three characteristics and that these are the, these are the things that if we really, really knew we would be set free from our taints and habits. So I had an experience. I was, I was uh, thinking about the process of knowing. And I have a, a 
three stories I'd like to tell you about it, or three vignettes you could think about. One is I was, um, I was driving my car just, uh, just yesterday, and I wanted to change the channel from the, the, the uh, station, and I pushed a button that then put another station on, and somehow that button, uh, although I didn't set it that way, was now on a Chinese language station. And uh, it was late in the evening, and I was uh, driving to my son's house, where I sometimes spend the night. And it was pleasant to listen to, and someone was talking away in Chinese, and I knew it was Chinese because, or at least I th I'm pretty sure it was Chinese, because I would recognize uh, Japanese or Lao or Thai or um, uh, Korean. And, and besides, I was pretty sure it was, it was Chinese from the lilt of it. Very pleasant to listen to. So I listened, and I realized that since I don't speak Chinese at all, I didn't understand at all what was happening. I couldn't get it. And then, after a while, I thought a person was just talking, talking, talking. And then another voice entered what was clearly a dialogue. So now I understood a little bit more. I understood that it was a dialogue. And the other voice didn't actually speak words. The other voice said, hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, hmm, hmm, hmm. So did you get all those meanings of those hmms? I thought I did. A hmm of interest, a hmm of appreciation, hmm. Uh, a hmm of, what do you know? <laughs> a surprise. <laughs> Not like hmm, it's a universal language, isn't it? You know, if somebody says hmm, in a certain way, you get it. So then I know two things about it. I know that there's two people discussing something and one of them is appreciating the other one, and the other one is carrying on expounding his point of view. But I still don't know anything else about it. And then the person who's continuing on speaking says, hmm, this says all those things, talk, 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 talk. Want to be a millionaire, talk, 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 talk. Just like that, that phrase in the middle of it. Because it's clearly taught, and I, I, asked the, I asked my granddaughter later, is there a program called Want to Be a Millionaire? She said, yeah, it's on television, it's a program. So you can't translate it when you talk. So now I know that there's two people expanding, expounding about probably about uh, the zeitgeist or the culture or what's new on television. But at least I have more of a an understanding of what they're saying, and especially you know, want to be a millionaire. So I knew more, but I realized that that was all I could possibly know about it. And I, I thought about the fact that if I spoke Chinese, and assuming that I spoke that dialect of Chinese, when I turned it on, I couldn't possibly not know what they were saying. Like if I turn on an English language program, there's no way that I can't not know what they're saying because that I have enough wherewithal to get it. I'm far from being able to grasp that. There are other languages that if I turn on the radio station that I am not as fluent as in as I am in English, but that I get because I'm fluent enough in them. But this one, I was far from it. But other people aren't. I thought about that. One, once there's enough in there, Kondanya had enough in there, so he needed only one sermon, and he got it. I'm going to read you a little piece. Uh, I'll, I'll read you a um, paragraph out of a book called On Being Certain. 
It's about the experience of being certain that you know something, certain that you understand something. So I'll read you this paragraph and hang in with the paragraph. See what you feel about this. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is, better, is a better place than the street. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Once successful, complications are minimal. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can also cause problems. One needs lots of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor. If things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance. So, that's English. <laughs> you got it? How many people Kandanya got it? All right. <laughs> Two Kandanyas, okay. I'm going to tell you one word, and then I'll reread the paragraph, okay? You are one word away from understanding that paragraph. The word is kite. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than the street. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Once successful, complications are minimal. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can also cause problems. <laughs> One needs lots of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor. If things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance. How many people got it? <laughs> so then, preach the same sermon twice. <laughs> did you know that? That did you? Okay, did you know it, Donald? No. <laughs> but once I tell you it's a kite, you can't not know it, can you? Every single sentence then fits in exactly. You won't forget it either. If someone reads it to you again five years from now, you'll know that. So my person who told me about um, knowing with a capital K, he said, uh, somebody says to you, look in this book uh, and see this, this, this picture. This is a picture of uh, melanoma's cells. They're a, they're a form of a cancer. And he said, you know, matter of fact, if that's interesting to you, look in this microscope. You can see them actually, how they're formed and how they encroach on the uh, surrounding territory. And you're interested. You kind of get it. And then they say, uh, you remember that biopsy I took from you two weeks ago? Whoa. So then it, like, suddenly has a very big import. And the word melanoma is a tremendous word. 
you know, we think about the numbers of um, sentences we've heard in our life. There's been an accident. There's, uh, I have some dreadful news for you. This is the police calling. Uh, you can fill in the blanks. All of us have gotten phone calls in our life that we didn't want to get and didn't imagine that we'd ever get. Uh, I don't remember if I told you when I spoke the other day that my friend uh, Norman Fisher at his eulogy for his friend Alan Liu just three weeks ago uh, said uh, several times in his talk, this is the one talk I never wanted to give. And uh, he ended it by using the title of uh, uh, one of Alan's uh, books. He said, uh, uh, I, am so, I am so bereft. I'm glad to give Alan the last word. Alan would have said, this is real and you are absolutely unprepared. I think that's true of us in our lives. We know about things all the time, but we know about them with a small n. We almost know. If we really, really knew, we would be so converted from every habit that got in the way of totally being able to love without restraint, totally being able to respond with compassion all the time, totally being uh, grateful for this moment in which to serve, if we really, really knew. So I, uh, I, I told you all of those because I thought to myself, I've, I, I really wanted to read to you also from my very favorite um, Buddhist teacher who, um, whose um, monk name was Nyanapanaka. He was Nyanapanaka Mahatera. He died in his late 90s. He was the uh, 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 main editor for many years of the Buddhist Publication Society in uh, Sri Lanka. Very, very venerable monk and teacher and sage. And I, act, and I love to read what he writes. He's a, really a splendid writer, I think. And um, in preparation for uh, talking about mindfulness tonight and the, for, the power of mindfulness to really dispel once and for all the clouds in the mind. I went back and read the essay uh, in uh, The Vision of Dhamma on uh, the power of mindfulness. And uh, I realized that I, you know, I've, read it, I, I've read it many times and each time I underline more and more because it seems to me great, you know, and today I was underlining the underlines so, so, because I couldn't say it better than he said. So I'll skip because I'm not going to read you the whole of Nyanapanika. But I'm going to use a lot of his words because it's, it's such a marvelous exposition of this practice of mindfulness. And I think to myself that the, the, the pedagogy of the Buddha was twofold. He went around telling people how it is and he told, uh, he told stories and similes and uh, parables, much, much like Jesus did. And he told a story that was meant to convey an idea, and people got it. 
And uh, one of the very exciting things of reading the early stories of the Buddha is how many people just listened to a story and absolutely were so clear-minded about what is true that never again did they become confused. Then I have a feeling, of course I've completely made this up because I don't know this to be true, that the Buddha must have seen how many people didn't get it right away and said to himself, hmm, I have to teach a practice um, because some people, they don't get it just by hearing a story. They're going to have to look by themselves and see for themselves over time. And so I imagine that his exposition, his teaching of the foundations of mindfulness, how to pay attention, what to pay attention to, but mostly the value of mindfulness was for those of us who don't get it completely, once and for all, forever, just by hearing a story. So a little bit of Nyanapanika in the introduction to this, he says, um, mindfulness, in fact, if we may personify it, has a rather unassuming character. Compared with it, mental factors such as devotion, energy, imagination, and intelligence are certainly more colorful personalities, making an immediate and strong impact on people and situations. Their conquests are sometimes rapid and vast, though often insecure. Mindfulness, is of, on the other hand, is of an unobtrusive nature. Its virtues shine inwardly, and in ordinary life, most of its merits are passed on to other mental faculties, which generally receive all the credit. <laughs> I just think that's so dear. I couldn't have possibly said that better. Mindfulness walks slowly and deliberately in its daily task as of a rather humdrum nature. Yet where it places its feet, it cannot easily be dislodged, and it acquires and bestows true mastery of the ground it covers. He then goes on to quote the beginning of the sutta on the foundations of mindfulness. This is the only way, monks, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of pain and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. Then he goes on to say, some paragraphs later, the difference between, he tells, he says, that what I'm really going to talk about is bare attention. Because he says, in life, in a life and thought governed by the Buddha's teaching, mindfulness is mostly linked with clear comprehension of the right purpose or suitability of an action and other considerations. It's also a moment of direct, uh, careful, factual observation is often followed immediately by an emotional reaction, discriminative thought, reflection. He said, therefore, mindfulness isn't, it's not, the, the thing itself is not viewed in itself. To tap the actual and potential power of mindfulness, it's necessary to understand and deliberately cultivate its basic unalloyed, unalloyed form, which we'll call bare attention. Bare attention, we, by bare attention, we understand the clear and single-minded awareness of what actually happens to us and in us at successive moments of perception. It's called bare because it attends to the bare facts of a perception without reacting to them in speech, deed, or mental comment.
then we're skipping all along a while. It says, bear attention is developed in two ways. We're doing it in two ways here. As a methodical meditative practice with selected objects, that's what we're doing in these formal practice sessions. Sitting here, bringing the attention to the breath and the body, the breath within the body and everything else that comes along with that. Walking and feeling the movements of the body and the changing sensations of the feet. We do that in those meditative practices and we do them as far as is practicable in the normal events of the day as we go about the rest of the day. He makes a list of four powers of bare attention. I'll tell you a little bit about each of those powers. They're the powers of tidying up and naming. I love it. Nobody says tidying anymore. Nobody says I'm going home to tidy my house. Say I'm going home to clean or other people are coming to clean, but nobody says tidy. Tidy is an old word. I, I love to think about the fact that he was, uh, Yannick was born in Germany in the early part of the 20th century and graduated from uh, university in about 1920. He was a German Jew, and I imagine his mother as being a very tidy housekeeper. <laughs> I am imagining a housekeeper in the early 1900s, tidying. So he knows that word, tidying. <laughs> tidying and naming is the first power of bare attention, which we'll come back to in a minute. The second power is it's, that it is non-violent and non-coercive and therefore solves things rather than makes problems. It cultivates the power of stopping and slowing down, which he will point out are central to being able to really transform the habits. And it provides a directness of vision, a, direct, a directness of vision so that we see through outer manifestations and we see the true story of how things are. So then he begins, he goes back and he says, okay, let's talk a little bit about tidying. And uh, he talks about anybody, who, if anyone whose mind is not harmonized and controlled through methodical medita meditative training should take a close look at his own everyday thoughts and activities, he would be met with a rather disconcerting sight. Apart from the few main channels of his purposeful thoughts and activities, he will everywhere be faced with a tangled mass of perceptions, thoughts, feelings, and casual bodily movements showing a disorderliness and confusion which he certainly would not tolerate in his living room. <laughs> I love that. I think to myself, I can just picture his mother's living room. You picture overstuffed, velvet settees with lace antimacassars over them. You know, in a Victorian living room, there's a lot of stuff. They have the lamps with all those beads hanging from them and memorabilia from trips and souvenirs from all over the place, which, if artfully arranged, would be very pleasant to see. But uh, it would be, if not artfully arranged, quite overwhelming, and you might not find a comfortable place to sit down. He said, really, you have to look and pay a little bit of attention and you have to be able to see. Otherwise, he, he doesn't use the, the, the I, I was thinking of suggesting you might trip over the furniture. He says, if you don't look where you're going, you might trip over the stones and the roads. You have to look, he said. And besides, not only might you trip over the stones and the road, 
if you don't look, but you would miss the gems in the road if you didn't look. So it's not only to keep yourself from tripping up, but to keep yourself from seeing what you really need to see. And he goes on to say, so many bits and pieces floating around. He said, if we observe our own minds, see if this is you, by the way, we shall notice how easily diverted our thoughts are, how often they behave like undisciplined disputants constantly interrupting each other and refusing to listen to each other's arguments. Again, many lines of thought remain rudimentary or are left untranslated into will and action because courage is lacking to accept their practical, moral, or intellectual consequences. If we continue to examine more closely our average perceptions, thoughts, or judgments, we'll have to admit that many of them are unreliable. They are just the products of habit, led by prejudices of intellect or emotion, by our pet preferences or aversions, by faulty or superficial observations, by laziness or by selfishness. Such a look into long neglected quarters of the mind will come as an unwholesome, as a wholesome shock to the observer. So he goes on to say, you know, when you see that, you think, <gasps> and then you are really spurred on to really tidy it up. He goes on to say, this is the culmination of the tidy, then we go on to the naming, I think. But he goes on to say, this negligence about tidying the confusion cause, creates trouble. Thus, the old Buddha's teacher, teachers have said, it's, this is from the Sutta Nipata, what the old Buddha's teachers have said. I wonder if they actually said it. or this, Oh, it says it's a commentary to the Sutta Nipata. That makes more sense. Uh, in such and such a commentary, it says, negligence produces a lot of dirt. As in a house, so in the mind, only a very little dirt collects in a day or two, but if it goes on for many years, it will grow into a vast heap of refuse. <laughs> <laughs> so now we have a mind with tangled web of thoughts, mostly as a vast heap of refuse. But he goes on to say, how are we going to deal with this unwieldy tangled mass? The working principle here is that two thoughts cannot exist together at the same time. If the clear light of mindfulness is present, there is no room for mental twilight. When sustained mindfulness has secured a firm foothold, there will be a matter of comparatively secondary importance how the mind, this is a very important little piece here, how the mind will then deal with these rudimentary thoughts, moods, or emotions. One may just dismiss them and replace them by purposeful thoughts, or one may allow and even compel them to complete what they have to say. So you can do A or B, which means people ask that a lot in the questions, should I go back to the breath or should I follow along? He said you can do either one. You can really say I'm not doing that now and do something purposeful that will create wholesome states or you can let the, the other, whatever's come up, go on and reveal, in the latter case, if the thought reveals itself, they will reveal how poor and weak they actually are. And it will be not difficult to depose them, dispose of them once they are forced into the open. Goes on to say, when you see this, it brings up such shame and you moral dread. Look at what's happening here. I really don't want to do this anymore. It is the power of moral shame, he says. Remember, remember we mentioned this hitty, the power of moral shame that's been mustered here as an ally. You say, I don't want to think these thoughts. 
it's wonderful that he says, you know, we see it and we say, oh, is that, I, I'm thinking he's thinking about, I don't know how many people think, oh, uh, I don't want to be thinking these thoughts. I don't know, we have a different culture. Then he goes on to say, naming. I won't read you this part so much, but I'll tell you about it. You know how we've suggested to you that you note, that you either say or at least know. I sometimes say mental noting and I sometimes say mental knowing. You name what it is, if not with a word, but certainly a kind of, this is this, this is this, this is this. He talks about when you name things, they're less dreadful. They have a name. He talks about uh, myths in which the demon is named. And as soon as the demon is named, it disappears. In fairy tales, you name the demon and they disappear. Rumpelstiltskin is your name. Poof, it's gone. And uh, he said, when you see what's in your mind and you name it, it slinks away. The appearance in the mind of undesirable, this is Nyanapanaka again, of undesirable and ignoble thoughts, even if they are very fleeting and only half articulate, have an unpleasant effect on one's self-esteem. Thus, so that means they have an unpleasant effect on one's self-esteem, that you begin by naming them to just to have the habit of saying, you know, out of here. This isn't what I want to be doing anymore. Naming, you have a mastery over them. He says the most important part of tidying and naming is that you get to see what's there. Not only that you see what's there, but that you see that it comes and goes. You see the nature of what's there. And he ends that part on the naming and noting by saying the most important thing is really getting to see behind what's there that it's all coming and going. Noticing the, the uh, understanding that true nature, the nature of momentary rise and fall. Then he talks about the mind being uh, non-coercive, mindfulness being non-coercive. Because if you're coercive with anything you don't like, it gets worse. If you fight with it, you make it worse. He talks about three objectionable things that happen in meditation that you might tend to fight with, but mindfulness really isn't fighting, it's just noticing them. And he talks about the three things that come up that disturb the otherwise tranquility of the mind are external disturbances, such as noise, in a life, it would be the external stuff in life that's going on. One's own mental uh, defilements, he calls it, the uh, afflictions, lust, anger, restlessness, unhappiness, sloth, doubt. The third is incidental stray thoughts. So these distractions come up all the time. He said, but the best thing is not to fight with them. The uninstructed beginner will generally react in two ways. First, he'll try to shove them away lightly. When he fails with that, he will try to suppress them by sheer force of will. But these disturbances are like insolent flies. By whisking, first lightly and then with increasing vigor and anger, one may perhaps succeed in driving them away for a while, but usually they return with an exasperating constancy. I hope you're enjoying this. I think this is the cutest thing in the world. <laughs> a successful nonviolent procedure in mind control has to start with the right attitude. 
There must be first the full cognizance and sober acceptance of the fact that these three disturbing factors live in the same world we live in. They are co-inhabitants of this world, whether we like it or not. Our disapproval of them will not alter them. It goes on to say about the external annoyances. So there are bound to be external annoyances of various kinds, noise, interruption of visitors. We can't live in a splendid isolation. He says you have to, get, you have to know that. Uh, he says as far as the second one, those defilements, mind habits, he says uh, the venerable Mahasi Sayadaw, he's quoting Burmese great teacher, said, in an unliberated worldling, mental defilements are sure to arise again and again. He has to face the fact and know these defilements well in order to apply again and again the appropriate remedy of mindfulness. Then they will grow weaker, more short-lived, and will finally disappear. To know the occurrence and nature of defilements is therefore as important to a medita meditator as to know the occurrence of his noble thoughts. By facing them, they go away, he says. By hitting blindly at them, one will only exhaust or even hurt oneself. But by observing carefully their nature and behavior when they arise in one mi one's mind, one will be able to meet them well prepared, often to forestall them, and finally to banish them fully. Therefore, he says, meet your defilements with a free and open glance. Don't be ashamed or afraid or discouraged. The last, he said, are stray thoughts and dreams, planning, imagining, fearing, hoping, sense perceptions that occur at the very time of meditation, often dragging them after them, a long trail of associated ideas. That, you know, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the, uh, the, uh, the understanding that many people mention when they come in for their interviews about how surprised they are about finding when they're really, really paying attention that something that somewhere along the line something happens, and the attention gets gets derailed by a thought or a, or a feeling, and then eight thoughts and stories down the line, they they catch and say, "Whoa, how did I get here? I was sitting nicely, minding my breath tranquilly, being all right, and then all of a sudden." The mind, the attention becomes derailed and follows all these associative links. I'm back in my second grade class and remembering the telephone number of my best friend in the second grade and all kinds of stuff, and I have no idea how I got there. He talks about the countermeasures for dealing with those three difficulties. Then, for, you might guess that noticing it clearly. The nonviolent device here, he said, is to apply bare attention to the disturbance with a minimum of response to it, with a mind bent on withdrawal. He says uh, Shantideva, who was a uh, noted uh, 6th century, I think, commentator, said how to deal with, he said you should deal with mind uh, hindrances like you would deal with uh, fools. If you can't avoid them, you should at least treat them with the indifferent politeness of a gentleman. Uh, so that means you don't fight with them. You say, ah, I notice you're here. He said, but here's a third way. If for some reason they do not yield, 
one should deliberately turn one's attention, full attention to the disturbance and make it the object of knowledge. Thus one transforms it from a disturbance to meditation to a legitimate object of meditation. And we've talked about that a lot in the instructions and the questions and answers, I'm sure in your interviews as well. When something has really taken up residency and occupies the whole attention, not to try to get away from it or try to be rid of it, but to be fully with it as the object of meditation. He ends by saying, let intruders come and go like all the other members of their vast unceasing procession of mental and physical events that passes before our observant eyes in the practice of bare attention. They arise and having arisen, they pass away. That's so simple. I just really am very much um, buoyed up by reading this. And he talks about uh, mindfulness, the delicateness of the mindful approach to recognition of something. He said that in, uh, in ancient times, in the path of purification of the Sudhimaga, the example is given of a test in, I guess, the time that the Vasudhimaga was written, for being a surgeon. And one of the tests for uh, uh, being able to do surgery on people was to be able to take a scalpel, a very sharp implement, and uh, with a lotus leaf floating on the top of a bowl of water, cut a seam through the stem of the lotus leaf through the center stem that goes all the way down to the lotus leaf without breaking the leaf and without uh, disturbing the water. That carefully. So the third of the four powers of mindfulness, to pick up the pace here, the, the third is about keeping still. It says mindfulness isn't passive. It's in fact an activating force. It makes the mind alert. Alertness is indispensable for purposeful activity. And its purposeful activity is restraining the mind from uh, restraining any impulsive action. Slowing down keeps uh, us from acting or thinking or speaking in a way that's uh, impetuous. I was thinking as I read this that suddenly it says completely not in keeping with Nyanaponika, whose uh, whose language is so beautiful and lofty and poetic. And I suddenly remembered all the signs that uh, for a while that they they were very popular. You'd see, you'd see them in hardware stores. They were signs that people could put up in their workplace that said things like "Think ahead." And the ahead was bunched all up, the last three letters, because they didn't think ahead. Or it would say, um, be sure that mind is in gear before mouth is in motion. And uh, you know, so I, I was really a little embarrassed to find myself thinking that, or dismayed to find myself thinking that in the middle of Nyanaponika's lofty prose. But, uh, but anyway, I wrote it in the margin that that's what that means mind in gear before the mouth is in motion. It makes sense. I, I did think, though, about the idea of stopping, you know, you, you know that 
I don't think that we're meant to stop in our lives, and I, I really get it about it not being a, a passive activity. But for the mind to stop its habits, and uh, uh, there's a very famous story about um, um, a man named Angulimala in the time of the Buddha. And the story itself is long, but for very complicated reasons, Angulimala has undertaken the very dreadful mission of uh, killing a thousand people and taking a finger from each of them and put the, and making a garland out of them. Um, and just taking the story from that point, the thousandth person is going to be the Buddha. And in that part of the story, he's approaching the Buddha, and the Buddha keeps walking in a slow and deliberate way. And Angulimala picks up the pace and tries to run and catch him. And the faster he runs, and faster and faster he runs, he doesn't seem to be able to catch the Buddha, who is just walking along in a slow and deliberate, easy, relaxed way. And uh, at some point, Angulimala shouts out, Stop! And the Buddha turns to him and says, I've already stopped, Angulimala. When are you going to stop? And Angulimala becomes his disciple and is converted to understanding. That's a, to be able to stop, really, the, the drivenness of unwholesome habits is really to be freed. There is one more example of uh, uh, this is a whole page. I won't read it to you, but I started to read it. It had an interesting effect on me. He's talking about um, really stopping and paying very close attention to every moment of the arising, a possible arising of um, lust or uh, aversion, uh, uh, pursuant to a pleasant or an unpleasant experience. So this is particularly about a pleasant experience that what might then be the unwholesome consequences of not guarding the sense doors. And uh, I started to read it and I was thinking, well, maybe this is a little too Victorian. But I'll read a little bit of, of it to you because I ended up thinking not too Victorian, actually quite contemporary. Let's take an example, he said, of a pleasant visual object which has aroused our liking. At first, that liking might not be very active and insistent. If, at this point, the mind is already able to keep still for detached observation or reflection, the visual perception can easily be divested of its, of its still very slight admixture of lust. The object becomes registered as just something seen that has caused a pleasant feeling, or the attraction felt is sublimated into a quiet aesthetic pleasure. But if that earliest chance has been missed, the linking will grow into attachment and into the desire to possess. If now a stop is called, the thought of desire may gradually lose its strength. It will not easily turn into an insistent craving, and no actual attempts to get the possession of the desired object will follow. But if the current of lust is still unchecked, then the thought of desire may even express itself by speech and asking for the object, or even demanding it, with impetuous words, that is, unwholesome 
mental karma is karma is followed by unwholesome verbal karma. A refusal will cause the original current of lust to branch out into additional streams of mental defilements, either sadness or anger. But if even at that late stage, one can stop for quiet reflection or bare attention, accept the refusal and renounce wish fulfillment, further complications will be avoided. If, however, the clamoring words are followed by unwholesome bodily karma, and if driven by craving, one tries to get possession of the desired object by stealth or by force. The karmic entanglement is complete and its consequences must be experienced in their full impact. But still, even after the complete completion of the evil act, one stops for reflection. It will not be in vain. You know, I started to read that and I thought, well, this is a little Victorian. But then I thought about how in recent public history, how much uh, public pain there's been in prominent people who have not at some earlier part in that string of karmic buildup, the thought leading to the wish, leading to the speech, leading to behavior. It begins to, it begins to make a lot of sense. He then talks, and I'll skip it by because I really want to come to the last four, about the Buddha teaching um, his son Rahula and saying, in essence, before any action, in the middle of any action, and after any action, one should reflect. Is what I am about to do in the middle of doing or just done for my benefit and for the benefit of all beings? And if it is, great. And if it isn't at any point in that, you can stop. Even after having done it, you can make amends. The fourth is the directness of vision. They really get to see things as they are. By directness of vision, he says, we understand a direct view of reality without any coloring or distorting lenses, without the intrusion of emotional and habitual prejudices and intellectual biases. It means coming face to face with the bare facts of actuality, seeing them as vividly and freshly as if we were seeing them for the first time. Probably many of you know the final uh, lines of uh, T.S. Eliot, Four Quartets. We shall not cease in all our exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be that we will arrive at the place that we first started and see it for the first time. Arrive at the place that we started and see it for the first time. I think that that's what we're meant to do. I think that my experience is that from small k to capital K, I see things and I think, ah, now I have it. And I have it a little bit, but not enough not to sometimes get confused not to sometimes get trapped in mind habits, not to want to get it more, to come more close to the capital K. What he really talks about is in seeing directly that there is both this truth that is freeing and the, the, the freedom that comes from it, and the pain, actually, of 
not being free. It gives rise to a tremendous urgency about practice. In the very end of this particular discourse, Thus, in the enfoldment of the power of mindfulness, my, mindfulness will prove itself as a true embodiment of the Dharma, of which it was said, and this is using Sutta language, well proclaimed as the Dhamma by the Blessed One, visible here and now, not delayed, inviting inspection, onward leading to be experienced by the wise. I think about... Uh, the reason that I wanted to uh, read that uh, that uh, paragraph that was one word away from understanding is one of the things that really excites me about practice is I never know how many words I am away from understanding, how many insights I am away from really uprooting the habits of my mind that cause me suffering. I had a teacher years ago the whole of that story was his uh, is uh, I, 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 I asked the teacher on retreat uh, er, very early in um, in my practice history about my uh, uh, a question I had about getting up in the middle of the night and going to sit James told you the other day that he and I both had the habit of sitting late in the night or very early in the morning. And uh, one of the things that uh, I wondered about was I'd get up at 2 in the morning or very early, and I'd feel very wide awake, and uh, I'd, I'd, full of zeal, go to the meditation hall and start sitting. And I'd sit a little bit, and then I'd get sleepy. And I'd say, all right, now I'll walk, and I'd walk a little bit. And then I'd say, okay, I'll sit, and I'd sit a little bit, and I'd get sleepy, and up and down, up and down, up and down the whole rest of the night. And um, I remember asking Usivali, uh, maybe it would make sense. I said, I, I told him that, and I said, maybe it would make sense to just stay in bed and not come so early in the morning. He said, no, it makes sense. He said, you should get up and go and sit there. He said, no matter how many times you fall asleep, every time you wake up, you wake up. He said, every moment of mindfulness erases a moment of conditioning. And that was so exciting to me from one of those lines that has really guided my practice through all these years. Every moment of mindfulness erases a moment of conditioning. And I had this vision in my mind of a big blackboard that was all scribbled up with conditioning, whatever that is. And that every moment that I paid attention and saw clearly what was happening, I was erasing a little bit of that conditioning. And that's probably, I figured, probably scribbling at the same time that I was erasing. <laughs> as I, you know, I, you know, if I don't have a completely clear mind, I'm probably making a lot of mistakes. I'm probably scribbling. I hope I'm erasing faster than I'm scribbling. <laughs> but I thought to myself, and it was so inspiring, I thought, I may be one scribble away from enlightenment. I have, I have no idea. And I think about that, because I don't think we, any of us have any idea how many scribbles away we are. 
And you don't know, I don't know, what's going to be the thing that's going to, that's going to be the moment of understanding. Anything that wakes us up, maybe be a moment sitting on the zafu, maybe it'll be a moment taking a walk. Maybe it'll be a moment eating a lunch or hearing a story or hearing a poem. I've been reading a book of um, good poems for hard times written by Gar- picked out by Garrison Keillor. So I want to read you just one. Maybe this is it. When I taught you at eight to ride a bicycle loping along beside you as you wobbled away on two round wheels, my own mouth rounding in surprise when you pulled ahead down the curved path of the park, I kept waiting for the thud of your crash as I sprinted to catch up while you grew smaller, more breakable with distance, pumping, pumping for your life, screaming with laughter, the hair flapping behind you like a handkerchief waving goodbye. Let me just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.